Morning, church. It's always so great to be with you. Just to reiterate one thing that Pastor Steve shared. If you're new to the church or you're newer to the church and you haven't participated with us yet in a rooted group, cannot encourage you strongly enough to take that step and to get involved. Like Steve said, it's really our way of providing the soil that allows your spiritual roots to grow deeper. When people start attending a growing church, immediately they begin to say, I don't know, how can I get connected? How can I get plugged in? This is the way to do it. So there's a lot of information out there in the lobby. You can also hit that QR code. There's more information there. But those groups start on September 11th, all right? So if you got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 30, picking up where we left off last week. Let me uh, just recap a little bit, but just to bring us up to speed with where we're at now. We have been looking at the life of this man, Jacob. And what we're going to see this week is just kind of another spicy text filled with more family dysfunction. Jacob has been living up to his name. If you remember, his name literally means deceiver. He spent his entire life defrauding people, lying, cheating, manipulating. Perhaps the pinnacle of his deceit was aimed towards his father, Isaac. He took advantage of his old age, stole a blessing away from his older brother Esau, and Esau's not happy about it. He's angry. In fact, he's so upset, the only thing that comforts him is the thought of removing his brother's head. His plan backfires, so Jacob is now on the run. He's away from his home, everything he's ever known. He has nothing. His head's on a rock. He's in the middle of nowhere. And God appears. And essentially God says, let me tell you, I am a God of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Here's this guy that's made a wreck of his life and the lives of those around him. And yet God says, I'm with you. In fact, God actually says, here's what I'm going to do for you. In spite of all your dysfunction, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a family. In fact, you're going to have more descendants than there are dust in this ground beneath you. I'm going to make your name great. Ultimately, through you, one is going to come forth and that person is going to be a blessing to the entire world. If you read the rest of the Bible, you discover that Jesus is the descendant of Jacob who through his death on the cross ends up being a blessing to all humanity. But he's made a mess of his life. Even though God appears to him, you'd think that would be a source of encouragement. Like he'd be like, all right, God is with me. I'm, I'm not taking any steps backwards from here. Nothing but an upward trajectory. And what happens is he finds himself getting a taste of his own medicine as he travels to his uncle's land to find himself a wife, the deceiver, the one who has deceived and manipulated others his entire life. He gets worked. He gets a taste of his own medicine and he doesn't like it. Essentially, his father-in-law tricks him, does a, a sort of a, a wife exchange, thinks he's marrying one woman, ends up with another, has to work an additional seven years to marry the woman he loves. That's Rachel. A week earlier, he was a single guy. A week later, he has two wives. And as we'll see in the text today, a few years after that, he has four wives. So we should probably push the pause button here and have a discussion about polygamy, right? Because there are some 
who use the Bible to support the idea of polygamy. They say polygamy is in the Bible. Some of the patriarchs practice polygamy, therefore polygamy is acceptable. Here's what you need to know, all right? Nowhere in the Bible does God command a man to marry more than one woman. You're just not going to find it. In fact, wherever you read polygamy taking place, what follows is just a whole lot of family drama. We're going to see that in our text. Why is that? Well, it goes back to God's design. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, God creates everything, declares it all good, and then he says, uh-oh, time out. The first not good of all creation, Adam is alone. He needs a compliment. He needs someone that will fit him emotionally, spiritually, physically. And then it, God creates Eve. Eve is brought before Adam. Adam says, essentially, she's breathtaking. He actually breaks out into poetry. Finally, at last, someone who is like me. But she's different in the best possible ways. That's why in Genesis chapter 2, we read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That phrase, become one flesh, among other things, refers to the physical union of male and female within the covenant commitment of marriage. That's the way God designed it to be. Part of that fittedness does involve the physical compatibility between male and female for the purpose of creating a family. So God says, be fruitful and multiply. So part of that marriage covenant commitment actually does involve the formation of families. And this is considered a, a blessing from God. But what happens when that gets turned inside out as a result of man's desire to do what God never commanded? Well, um, it becomes really, really messy. In Jacob's life with his four wives, there is bitterness, anger, intense jealousy, and severe competition. And yet... This is where God does some of his best work. God will work through all of these human mistakes and failures. And if you'll allow me to say it, God often works through human stupidity. I don't know how else to say it. Because sometimes we make really bad decisions. We hurt those around us. We hurt ourselves. And yet God is still working through that to accomplish his greater purposes. Because that's how great God is. Well, uh, there's so much drama that takes place uh, in this chapter. Um, and yet there's this consistent thread God weaves. And that thread is this. I'm going to do what I said I would do no matter what. And when it appears that all hope is lost, God shows up and does the miraculous so listen to the promise that God makes to Jacob. He says in chapter 28, verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. I mean, you're gonna have a lot of them. 
You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Jacob now receives this incredible. He's going to become the third patriarch. Goes from Abraham, his grandfather, to Isaac, his dad, to Jacob. He's the third patriarch. He will go on to have 13 children, one daughter. Something goes on with his daughter that we're going to read in a few chapters. It's super nefarious. And yet, you know, the Bible is super candid. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It's the story of sexual assault. And it's there. And it's the story of God working through even the horror of something like that. We'll get to that in a few chapters. But for now, he's got these 12 sons, and each son becomes a leader in the tribe of Israel, the nation of Israel. So you see God's promises coming true in spite of this man's rebellion and dysfunction, which means there's hope for you and I. But along the way, there's tremendous pain and heartache. Let me show you where this competition begins between these ladies. Verse 1, chapter 30. When Rachel, that's the wife that, that Jacob actually loves and worked 14 years to marry her. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Remember, this is where Jacob got taken. His father-in-law actually swaps one daughter for the other. And Jacob can do nothing but take it. So he has to work an additional amount of years to acquire Leah or to acquire Rachel as his wife. And this, the whole thing is totally messed up. It's totally dysfunctional. She said to Jacob, give me the children or I shall die. So this is an extreme reaction from her. I mean, remember again, he has paid, literally Jacob has paid almost five times the dowry price to marry Rachel. And yet she feels inadequate because she can't have kids. So here's the challenge for Rachel. And it's a challenge for many of us today, quite frankly. Rachel has allowed the culture to define her worth and value. Back in the day, a woman's ultimate value, according to the culture, was found in her ability to have kids. So here she is. She doesn't have any. For her, this would have been an embarrassment, a humiliation, and that's why she says, if I don't have kids, I'm going to die. But what's interesting is, if you notice, she actually kind of blames Jacob for this. I'll die if I don't have kids. You give me children. So there's no stopping. There's no consideration of what God's will might be for her life. Sometimes you and I are in these really challenging situations where we find ourselves kind of like, okay, I really don't want this in my life. And Rachel had the opportunity to pause and say, God, what do you want for me? Is this what you have? Is this the path that you have for me? And if so, what are you doing to me? What are you doing through me? But there's no conversation here uh, between her and God, really just this accusatory tone. So this now is an opportunity for her husband to lead her well, to show her kindness uh, and understanding, and to tell her that, you know, you're, you're loved regardless of what you do or how you perform, I'm just giving you unconditional love. And let me just tell you, there's, I think there's two driving forces in every human's life. The first driving force is this, this desire not to die, right? Um, we spend most of our lives thinking about what we can do to avoid death. That's why we don't put ourselves in risky situations very often. Uh, we, and, and all of a sudden we were invited to the uh, funeral of a friend and it's like we get slapped in the face with our own mortality. And we're like, oh man, it's going to be me someday. And then we leave and we try not to think about it ever again. There's this other driving force that every person has and it's this. Will I be loved 
unconditionally. In other words, will you love me for who I really am? So this is why so many people on this planet wear masks and they try to be someone that they're not. Because they think, if you know the real me, you won't like me. So I'm going to become somebody else in order to be loved. We all want unconditional love. I read the story about this guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher his name, and I apologize. Rian Sveigler. Maybe that name sounds familiar to some of you. His story is fascinating. This guy was the co-founder of the South African Satanists. Well, he gets saved. He comes to Christ a few weeks ago. And I listened to his testimony. And he said that the thing that brought him to Jesus Christ was the unconditional love he experienced from four Christians. Four. He said he'd never experienced that in his entire life. And so he was wrestling with it. You know, he's like, I spent my entire life anti-God, but then these Christians come in and, you know, here's the deal. They didn't affirm what I believed, nor did they, did they accept everything that I did. But you know what? They absolutely cared about me. And they treated me with honor and respect and dignity. And I had never experienced that in my entire life. I certainly didn't experience that from the community that, that I helped create. And he said, you know, it could only be the result of the God that they serve. And he gives his life to Christ. And as he's sharing this story, he can barely get through it because he's so moved emotionally. Everybody wants to be unconditionally loved. Now, think about it. Rachel was the beautiful one. She was the one that Jacob actually loved. And Leah understood this about her sister. Leah was kind of ordinary. She was a reminder, a visible reminder that she'd been, that Jacob had been tricked into this relationship. And it was really, really difficult for her. And then God shows up as we've seen him do many times in the lives of those who are hurting. Back in chapter 29, verse 31, we read this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that is unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God blesses Leah with children, and this makes Rachel jealous. Now, we've said this before. You know what jealousy is? Whenever you get jealous, here's what you have to realize. You're actually being enslaved by someone else. You're allowing someone to control your emotions. That's what, that's what jealousy is. So uh, as it turns out, um, Leah becomes incredibly fertile. And she keeps giving birth. And as we talked about last week, she names her children in an attempt to draw the love that she wants out of her husband. Reuben is, literally means a son. And she has another son, Simeon, another son, Levi. And Levi means attached. Now, now my husband will love me. Now he'll be attached to me. And it just doesn't happen. Both women, they just want to be understood. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because the Bible it's so in tune with the realities of human existence. Women want to be understood. Men want to be respected. And that's why the Bible commands husbands to understand their wives. All right. So 
Nowhere in the Bible does it tell husbands to understand, uh, or to, does it tell wives to understand their husbands. And I think, you know, for good reasons, because we're not that complicated, guys, you know. <laughs> we're just not. And you know I have to go here. It's just too easy, right? It's like you crack open the mind of a woman, and it's like a supercomputer. <laughs> There's wires going everywhere, you know, and it's like, it's like so many things happening at once and like the relational antenna are always up. They're always going, they're always in tune. And you look at that and you're like, (laughs) you open the mind of a man and it's, it's a lot less sophisticated, right? It just is. It's like the mind of a man has four wires. They're, they're like loosely connected. One is labeled food maybe sleep. Um, another one is maybe competition or sports. And the third one is sex. And the fourth one is sex. And, right? And it's just, it's not super complicated. But the ladies, and this is what makes a woman so beautiful. Right? The complexity of her thoughts and her imagination. You know, and when a husband can enter into that, it becomes kind of fun challenging. Um, Unfortunately, both want what the other has, and they both want unconditional love, and Jacob doesn't give it. Verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This couple has really poor communication, right? We know what happens with our anger, right? Isn't this how it goes, right? If you're married, what happens is one spouse will enter the conversation and they immediately, right, verbally, they start throwing hands. And what happens? The other spouse starts posturing up in response. He rejects her. He actually ends up blaming God. Hey, this isn't on me, this is God, right? Blame God. So she's left alone to make a decision. Verse 3, then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Rachel says, go unto her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah, his wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Very similar to the situation we read back in chapter 16 with Jacob's grandfather, his grandma, Abraham and Sarah. Same scenario plays itself out. So the law allowed for this kind of thing to happen, a, a surrogate mother, a surrogate birth, and the child would be taken into the home and given all the rights and privileges of the family as a family member. Um, but, you know, really, this is pure desperation on her part. Again, there's no turning to God. Uh, question, what do you do in your moments of desperation? Human nature is such that we turn inwardly. And we begin to plot and strategize and think through, how can I get this out of my life? How can I make this better? How can I fix that? And in a sense, there isn't anything wrong with that. But when we leave God out of that equation, that's where things begin to unwind. And, and more to the point, um, the best and worst possible outcome, actually, is that you actually succeed in your own plans. Let me say that again. Uh, the, the worst possible outcome is that you succeed in your own plans. What happens is this actually becomes very successful for Rachel. It's a huge success because Bilhah has a couple of sons. But look what it leads to, verse 9. When Leah, 
saw that she had ceased bearing children, then she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. So this is like, you know, this is like Leah strikes back, birthing wars, you know? It's like this, it's like there's a, it's like the, Jacob's house is like a puppy mill at this point. And he's just going back and forth, you know? He's like, okay, I'll do that. All right. All right. He's totally handing over whatever responsibility he used to have as a good husband. And notice though that Leah gets what she wants and she's still not satisfied. And man, this is the true condition of the human heart. I like what uh, Augustine wrote when he said this. He said, God, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. And there's a sense that there is a God-shaped void that we all have. And here's the craziest part. It's like when you succeed in getting what you want, it feels good and it feels like it's gonna be permanent, but in the end, it turns out not to be the thing that we actually thought it was gonna be. Um, it is that God-shaped void. Every decision that we make in life either moves us closer to God or further away from God. And that's, that's setting the course of, of the way in which we live. Um, and, and the really gnarly thing about it is we can take good things and turn them into ultimate things. And we find ourselves, um, again, defeated and let down. Family, spouses, really good things. But when we take those things and make them the ultimate things, uh, we do get let down. At one point in the Apostle Paul's life, he says, he makes this crazy statement. And I think just think of looking, I, when I look at it, I think it's such a mark of maturity, but he says, you know, I'm not going to be like Rachel and allow the culture to dictate my worth and my value because that's, <laughs> that's, a, people are really fickle. So he says, I care very little about what you think about me. Now he's not saying, I just don't need relationships. I don't need, that's not what he's saying. He's saying in the end, I'm not going to determine my worth based on what you think about me. Can you imagine living life like that? That's super free. But then he presses it. He says, you know, uh, I'm not that concerned with what I think about myself. No, that's how he's getting deep. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're like, man, I'm ready to take on the world. Hey, I'm the man. Nothing can stop me. I feel great. Sometimes you wake up and you're like, I'm garbage. I can't do anything. I don't want to face the day. I'm a failure. Paul says, I'm beyond all that. I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me because I know what God thinks of me. And I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. I couldn't be more valued and loved by God. And that is where I find my identity. So all these other things in our life, we can take good things, we elevate them to the place of idolatry and we don't even realize it. And then we wonder, why am I so let down in life? That's because good things have become ultimate things and those good things were actually the wrong things. So um, if, as if things couldn't get more bizarre, this happened, verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out, Reuben is the firstborn son, Leah's son went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she, Leah said to Rachel, is it a small matter? You have taken away my husband. Notice the hostility that's still going on between them. She says, would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, how about this? Then he, Jacob, may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. 
So this tells you what kind of, racial, what kind of control Rachel had uh, over uh, Leah and over her husband. Verse 16, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, now you must come into me because we worked out this deal, Rachel and I. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Issachar means reward. So here's what's happening. Leah's son is out in the field, Jacob or uh, um, Reuben, and he comes across these mandrakes, which are flowers. Mandrakes are flowers. Now it was believed that these flowers had the ability to make a woman fertile. No science behind it, totally superstition, but they buy into it. And so now, you know, Rachel's kind of out of her mind because she's like, oh no, Reuben's gonna give his mom, Leah, these fertile flowers and then Leah's gonna have a bunch more kids and then I'll be left out in the cold again, you know, in this competition of bearing children. So she says to Leah, here's the deal. I know what you want. You want Jacob's love and attention. I'll give it to you in exchange for some of those flowers. And Leah so desperately wants to be loved. She's like, deal. And then what happens is Leah gets pregnant again. So this is a weird text, right? And I'm kind of scratching my head figuring out what is the meaning of this? And here's the only thing I can come up with and I'm just gonna say it like it is. God uses the most unusual agencies to accomplish his purposes. It's been said that God works in mysterious ways. That is an understatement. God uses everything to get done whatever he wants. So um, this is true in my own life. I'm gonna share with you briefly a little bit of my story. When I was 17 years old, actually on my 17th birthday, October 21st, I was arrested and charged with a felony uh, alongside two of my friends, all three of us. And this was in Scottsdale, I know, really dangerous place, okay? <laughs> and so my friend's parents decided to bail them out and they left me uh, in jail. So I'm spending the night in jail. Now, it's done a little bit differently now because things have been modernized, right? When you're fingerprinted in a lot of places now, they do it digitally. But back in the day, it was with ink and that ink is designed so as not to dry out. So you get fingerprinted and you go through that and then they, uh, they place you in the, in the little jail cell there and immediately you're struck with all of the graffiti and the profanity that's written all over, like every inch of this place was just covered from the ink, the excess ink that's on your, even though they try to wipe it off, there's still some, some on there. So all kinds of graffiti and profanity everywhere. So I'm in this place, I'm by myself I lay down on the bottom bunk and I look up and someone after being arrested with the excess ink on their finger wrote, Jesus loves you. I remember thinking of all the messages that I could receive in this moment when I felt absolute bankrupt spiritually, emotionally, in every way. Some dude who got busted writes, Jesus loves you. 
and it absolutely stopped me in my tracks. And I thought to myself, if that's true, then that changes everything. The way I think, what I believe, how I conduct myself. Long story short, that was the moment that I committed my life to Christ, got involved in church, got discipled. And that's one of the reasons why I am here today. God uses the most unusual agencies. Now, I, for, I forgot to mention this in the first service, so I need to close the loop. The felony was dropped to a misdemeanor, all right? Half the church thinks I'm a convicted felon. I guess now I have some street cred, but... God uses the most unusual agents. And here's why I, I want to share that with you. So often we go through life and we try to make sense of it. And God is pulling all these different threads in. And he's weaving together this tapestry. I've shared it like this before. It's like, if you look at the backside of one of those hand-woven, this is like works of art. But if you look at the backside, it's just a bunch of frayed knots and loose ends, and you can't even make out the design. And then you turn that, 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 that over, and you see the beauty of the tapestry on the other side. You're like, oh, wow, that's stunning. All of that work behind the scenes so that you can get to the beauty of what's on the other side. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to have a million one of those, oh, I didn't see those threads coming together like that. But God, that is beautiful. This family is an absolute mess. And God says, yeah, just like you. And in the messiness of life, that's where my grace shows up and speaks right to your heart. So you don't have to be a victim of what the culture thinks you are. And by the way, you gotta be very careful because a 24-7 news feed, social media, the Bible says as a person thinks, so they are. Set your mind on the things that are above. You know, it's like on every page, it's like people finding themselves in a difficult situation as, as a result of their own misguided actions. And then they try to pull those threads together on their own apart from God. And it just, it leads to more heartache. So here, here's the lesson that, that I learned from this text. Maybe it'll speak to you. For me, the message has been this. Hey, Jason, stop worrying about what God is doing in the lives of other people. Just focus on what he's doing in your life. Let me say that again. Just stop. Stop worrying about what God is doing in the lives of other people and start focusing on what God is doing in your life and what God is doing to you. Because so often we miss what God wants to do to us. And as we've said many times, God is always interested in transforming us conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He does that to you, and then God begins to do some supernatural work through you. So we need to pray. Father, you know, as we, as we read and digest the good words of your book once again, we're just really thankful for the life of Jacob, Rachel, Leah, and what we learn about you. If anything, the message is loud and clear. We just need to be a rest. We want to be obedient. We want to pursue the things that you want. We want to be secure in your love for us. We want to minister to those around us. 
But first and foremost, we want to know what you're doing in our lives and how you're working on our relationship. So Father, as we leave here today, we pray that your spirit would speak so powerfully to every person in this room, Lord, especially to those that may be far from you. If anything, for them, the message is you're never too far from the outstretched arm of a God who loves unconditionally. And for this, we thank you. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, as always, it's all about him. And God's people said, amen.